0: You're listening to the Ephraim Lethbridge Podcast. Thanks, Chelsea. Good morning. If you want to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 10, that would be great. In 1953, a television show premiered that would last for 40 years and have a significant cultural impact It was geared towards preschoolers and often hosted by teachers. It was a really simple format. The hostess would greet the kids and then lead them through 30 or 60 minutes, depending on the local station, uh, of games and exercises and moral lessons. There was a recurring character called Mr. Do-Be, the oversized bee that would come and emphasize the moral lesson of the day, starting with the imperative Do-Be. Do-Be, a good citizen and put your trash in the trash can, or Do-Be, good boys and girls for your parents. This show was called The Romper Room. It was very popular. The cast, the kids, were rotated through every two months, and there was a waiting list to be on the show. In fact, parents would often put their kids on the waiting list before their children were even born. In 1959, in Baltimore, about six years after the show started, one of the producers said that there were so many preschoolers on the list that they wouldn't get to be on the show until they were 40 years old. That would probably change the dynamic of the show a little bit, I'm thinking. It had a huge cultural impact as well. This is what, this show is where we got our famous prayer, God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food. The show always ended with the hostess looking through her magic mirror and reciting romper, bumper, stomper, boo, classic writing, tell me, tell me, tell me, do magic mirror tell me today, did all my friends have fun at play? And then she would name the children that she saw on television land through her magic mirror. Anybody see this show growing up? Anybody remember their name being called? Anybody remember their name never being called? Yeah, yeah. There's something significant about being noticed, known, and named. We're in the middle of a sermon series looking at Jesus' identity claims in John's account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so far, we've looked at his claim to be the I am, the God of the covenant who's come to rescue and restore relationship with his people. We've looked at his claim that I am the bread of life, the God who satisfies and fills the hungry. I am the light of the world, the God who saves God's people from enslavement and guides them through the darkness. I am the gate, the God who is the protector, the passageway to life, and the provider. And this week, we are looking at Jesus' claim, I am the good shepherd. Jesus makes this claim twice in this passage within a couple of verses, and both times he makes the claim, he gives a distinguishing characteristic of the good shepherd. We see the first one in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Jesus doesn't explain what his death accomplishes for the sheep here, he, just that the good shepherd gives his life for them. But it's not the first time that he's indicated that he has come to die, and perhaps we can get a fuller picture of what happens through Jesus' death when we look at his other passages where he predicts his death. For example, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, one of the ruling religious leaders of the day, comes to Jesus in what appears to be a secret meeting at night, And in their conversation, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of a historical event that happened to the children of Israel as they were being led through the wilderness by the pillar of light and the pillar of cloud. And they started to complain about their situation. And they started to particularly complain about the provision God had given them in the form of manna. They didn't like it anymore. They were growing tired of it. And so they complained against God and God sent poisonous snakes into the camp to bite them in order to discipline them. Several of them got sick and died, and they repented of their complaint against God, and so God gave them a way of escaping death. He told Moses to sculpt a bronze statue of a snake, put it up on a pole, and then everyone who was bitten by a snake could look at that bronze statue and be healed. It's kind of a weird story, in our, particularly in our Western worldview and context, but Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Here we get a clue as to what Jesus means when he says he, the good shepherd dies for the sheep. Right before Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he says that his purpose is to give the sheep a rich and satisfying life. So putting these two statements together, we can conclude that that Jesus will bring healing to his sheep through his death and that the rich, satisfying, everlasting life he promises for the sheep will come through his death. He sacrifices his life for the sheep to live. The first distinguishing characteristic of the good shepherd, then, is that he gives his life for the sheep. The second distinguishing characteristic is found in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. There's the first distinguishing characteristic again. But the second is that the good shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know the Good Shepherd. George Beasley Murray in his commentary talks about the different understanding of the word know from a Western context and from ancient Near East context. And he writes in the Greek tradition, which we are, uh, we've come out of or we are a part of, knowledge is thought of as analogous to seeing with a view to grasping the nature of the object. For the Hebrew, knowledge means experiencing something. Knowledge of God for the Greek is primarily contemplation of the divine reality, theology, for example. For the Hebrew, it means entering into relationship with God. When Jesus says that he knows his sheep, he doesn't mean that he sees that they're sheep, like they got four legs, they're woolly, they say, bah, sheep. No. He's saying that he has a relationship with his sheep. He enters into their experience of life and invites them to experience life with him. That's what makes this so remarkable, this claim. That there's this mutuality in the relationship with Jesus. Not just that we have to get to know the shepherd, but that the shepherd knows us. The shepherd wants us to experience life in relationship with him. Further, there's not just this experience of life, there's a particularity to our relationship with Jesus. When Jesus looks out at us, he doesn't just see a flock of sheep. He sees individuals. You are not just one of many. Look at verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, the shepherd, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows your name. He knows you as an individual. There's something significant about being noticed, known, and named. I want to pause here for a moment and consider just for a minute. Do our gatherings on Sunday and throughout the week, do they reflect the shepherd's heart and character? I dream that when we gather with one another, that everyone who gathers with us would be noticed, known, and named by at least someone. That there would be zero left out, zero left behind. And so I'm starting to ask questions about how we can better notice and know people who gather with us. How we could structure our gatherings to better reflect the shepherd's heart and the shepherd's character for his sheep in our gatherings. To help us understand how fully the shepherd knows his sheep, Jesus makes a comparison. And I don't know if you noticed it, but let me start in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. Think about that for a minute. Just let your imagination dwell on that comparison for a minute. Imagine how how intimately and deeply and completely Jesus and the Father know each other. They've got all of eternity. They're, They're one perfect community. That's how deeply and intimately and completely Jesus knows you. And it's how deeply, completely, and intimately Jesus invites you to know him Words and comparisons, analogies fail me to try to explain it. I don't know how to make it any clearer except just to read it again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me just as my Father knows me. And I know the Father. There's something significant about being noticed, known, and named. Jesus knows you as well as he knows the Father, and you can know him as well as the Father does as well. The distinguishing characteristics of the Good Shepherd are that he sacrifices his life for the sheep to have life, that he knows the sheep, he invites them into experience life with him. And third, he protects the sheep. Flip over to verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me i give them eternal life and they will never perish no one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else no one can snatch them from no one can snatch them from the father's hand the father and i are one the sheep cannot be stolen We talked about this last week, so I won't spend too much time on it, where Jesus, as the door, is our protector. No one can steal his sheep from him. Jesus teaches here that the sheep's confidence and security is in the power of the shepherd. Psalm 23, I will not be afraid because I am such a powerful sheep. No, I will not be afraid because you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff Protect and comfort me. Jesus' teaching here isn't just kind of random stream of consciousness. Oh, I think I'll talk about being a shepherd for a while. John indicates in verse 20 that Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. And one of the traditions of Hanukkah was that the priests and religious leaders would evaluate their leadership of their people against the standard of Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God condemns the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel's day by comparing them to shepherds, to bad shepherds. And he says this in verse 3, "'You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost.'" Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. And then using language that parallels Psalm 23, God says that he's going to take over as the shepherd and lead his sheep directly, lead them into safe pasture and quiet places of rest. By making these statements at Hanukkah, Jesus is saying that the leaders of Israel in his day have failed as shepherds just as the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel's day have. No matter how high a grade they might have given themselves, God has evaluated them and declared them to be bad shepherds. In his allegory, they are hired hands at best, running away at the first sign of danger, leaving the sheep to fend for themselves, or thieves at worst, seeing the sheep as just an easy score, an easy way to benefit themselves. Either way, they're using the sheep for their own benefit. For the bad shepherd, the sheep are merely a commodity to be used up. The good shepherd knows the sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Ezekiel 34 and Jesus' teaching here in John 10 are challenging and convicting passages for church leaders, for pastors... I've already told you that I'm thinking about how we can better reflect the shepherd's character in our gathering so that everyone is noticed, known, and named. We're also evaluating my own life, how, how I might be living off of the flock to the harm of the flock and trying to avoid that. What benefits to myself, whether physically, financially, socially, emotionally, or spiritually, am I squeezing out of the flock? Am I, are, are we as leaders and are we as a community taking care of the weak and the injured? Am I, are, are we as leaders and as a community looking for those who have wandered away? Are, am I, are we as leaders and as a community willing to risk our own safety for the safety and healing of one another? Those are some tough questions and they've been convicting this week as I've reflected on them. Now, it might be tempting to excuse yourself from Jesus' evaluation. After all, you might say, I'm not a pastor, I'm not on the board, therefore, I'm not a shepherd. I'm pretty sure that Jesus would evaluate small group leaders, whether in youth, young adults, or adult groups, by the same standards, or Sunday school teachers, or gathering facilitators, or leaders of volunteer teams. Anyone who has a sphere of care over somebody else, Jesus would evaluate by this standard. I'm talking to anyone who functions as a shepherd, a leader, a caregiver, a provider, a protector. Are you caring for your flock like Jesus would? Do you know them? Not just seeing, but experiencing life together with them and inviting them to experience life with you. Do you address them as individuals? There's something significant about being noticed, named, and known. Maybe you're not a leader at all. You have no sphere of care for anybody, but you're not off the hook. John 10 is primarily about the good shepherd in contrast with the bad shepherds in Ezekiel 34. But it's also about good sheep. In Ezekiel 34, it's not just the shepherds that get evaluated. God also evaluates the flock, the sheep. And he says in verse 18, "'Isn't it enough for you to keep the best of the pastures for yourselves? Must you also trample down the rest?' Isn't it enough for you to drink clear water for yourselves? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? I remember when I was probably just entering into middle school age, I was an early riser, and so my parents decided that my chore for the morning would be to set the table for breakfast, and at 7 o'clock call everybody for breakfast. We were a busy family, often with lots of activities after school. So breakfast was often the meal that we would eat together as a family. And so one day in particular, I remember setting the table. It was 7 o'clock. I called everybody for breakfast, took the milk out of the fridge, and realized that there wasn't very much milk left. And we were about 20 or 30 minutes drive from the nearest grocery store. We lived in a small town that had a convenience store. It wasn't open at that point in time. So there was going to be very little milk for the six of us that were going to gather around the table. I also like cereal with milk, and think that dry cereal is gross, especially the kind of cereal that my mom bought. I told this story in the last service not realizing my mom was here. <laughs> thought she would maybe be here and I could edit it out, but no. No, sugar cereal was topping, and so you needed, definitely need milk in your cereal. So I called everybody for breakfast, poured my cereal, and poured milk in my bowl before anybody else could get there. And I realized that there was still a little bit of milk left in the jug. And so I poured it into my glass and drank it down before anybody else could get to the table. I was a bad sheep. Not only did I ensure that I got the best, cereal with milk is way better than dry cereal, I wasted the rest so that nobody could get any. God continues in Ezekiel 34, I will surely judge between the fat sheep, fat in this context is healthy, I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep, For you fat sheep pushed and butted and crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. You see, in God's flock, it's not just the shepherds who are responsible for the sheep. It's that the sheep are responsible for one another. Especially those who have much compared to those who have less. Less wealth, less privilege, less opportunity, less access. In John 10, just as there are distinguishing characteristics of the good shepherd compared to the bad shepherd of Ezekiel 34, so there are distinguishing characteristics of the good sheep compared to the bad sheep of Ezekiel 34. And we see them summed up in verse 27. All throughout the passage, but kind of summed up here. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And the rest of the passage would say, they know me. And they follow They know the shepherd, they listen to the shepherd's voice, and they follow the shepherd. Last week, we talked about the difference between a bounded set, in other words, a group that's defined by the boundaries around it, who's in and who is out, versus a centered set, a group that's defined by its center and how they're oriented towards the center. When you read through John chapter 10, you understand that that as Christians, we are a centered set. We are centered on Jesus. Jesus identifies who's part of his flock based on their orientation towards him. Look at verse 3 again. The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. Centered on the shepherd. After Church at 6 last week, one of the members of Church at 6 came up to me and we wrestled together about one of the verses that I read last week from Matthew chapter 7. On Judgment Day, Jesus says, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, on Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and performed many miracles in your name. They speak that Jesus is Lord and they do things that would seem impossible unless Jesus was with them. But Jesus replies, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. This is a tough teaching. This is a teaching that trips me up and troubles me. People who call Jesus Lord and point to miracles in their life as evidence that they are part of Jesus' flock, not part of Jesus' flock. How is this possible? As I was thinking about this this week, I think the key is what Jesus says to them. I never knew knew you no relationship with the shepherd they're not oriented towards the shepherd jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know jesus Secondly, right after Jesus teaches about those people who do these great things in his name, he tells the story about the person who builds a house on a rock foundation and the person who builds a house on a sand foundation. And a storm comes and wipes out the house that's built on the sand, but the house that's built on the rock survives. And then Jesus says that the person who builds on the rock is the person who listens to my teaching and follows it. The person who builds on the sand is the person who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus says, and follow me. It's not what you do for Jesus, it's do you know Jesus? If you want to be one of Jesus' sheep, if you want the life and the care and freedom that Jesus offers, if you don't want to be left out of the kingdom, if you want to be noticed, known, and named by Jesus, then it's really simple. Not easy, but simple. Listen to his voice and follow him. Let him know you and get to know him. And if you're not sure how, you're not sure what that looks like, that's where we come in as the community, as the rest of the flock. We want to walk with you in that. Before I wrap up this morning, let me just acknowledge that like many of the sheep in Ezekiel 34, I know you may be one of the wounded. I know that there's all kinds of reason that you might be wounded and weak. You may have been hurt by a bad shepherd or by a bully sheep. And my prayer is that this place, this community, this gathering would be a place of rest Nurture and healing for you. I pray that this community would be the green pasture where the shepherd lets you lie down and rest for a while. The the peaceful water that he leads you beside, where your soul is restored. You may have been hurt by a shepherd or a sheep from this very community, and if that's true, I'm I'm really sorry. Because I want this to be a place where people are noticed known and named. I want this to be a place where people, where the weak are taken care of, where the sick are tended to, where the injured are bandaged and the lost are sought for. We have a lot of room to grow and improve in this as a community, and I'm inviting you to be part of that growth and that conversation. See, Jesus and God make it clear that the leaders of the community have a massive responsibility to create a culture that reflects the nature and heart of the shepherd. But they all, he also makes it clear that we all share in that responsibility together. But that's for healthy sheep. If you are hurt, if you are wounded, whatever the cause of your wound, please take your time. I don't want this to be a community that just looks at sheep as a commodity. Oh, we can use you in this program. We can squeeze out some skill or some resource from you. I want this to be a community where the healthy care for those who are weak until you are strong enough to contribute as well. But take your time in that. We'll wait for you. My dream is that zero people will be left out or left behind, and that includes you who are wounded. If you are hurt, if you are wounded, when you're ready, would you please let us know about your wound? I know that sometimes in our hurt, particularly when it first happens, we just need a moment to get our bearings and discover kind of where we are hurting. A time to take stock of our wounds and our weakness. And sometimes we need time to determine if we can trust the community with our wounds. And that's okay. There's no rush on this. At the same time, I'm absolutely convinced that God created us to need one another and to need community to heal and to grow. So when you're ready, when you sense the shepherd prompting you, when you sense Jesus saying, it's time, it's okay, please let us walk with you in that. We're not always going to get it right for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes in our clumsy attempts to help, we're going to wound you further. And sometimes in our own woundedness, and our weakness, we're going to wound each other further. And I wish that wouldn't happen, but I'm not so naive to think it won't. What we are going to do is keep spending time with the shepherd to know him better and to better reflect his character and his care to one another. And we're going to keep pointing you to the shepherd as the ultimate source of healing and love and care the one who died for us so that we might live, the one who carried our weaknesses in himself that was weighed down by our sorrows. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sin, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb. The shepherd becomes a lamb for us. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth as a reminder of what our shepherd has done for us to make us part of his flock and to bring healing and wholeness to make it possible for healing and wholeness for us, we're going to celebrate communion together in just a moment. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that they were killing Jesus because he claimed to be one with God. He claimed to be God. And they didn't know that our good shepherd was willingly giving his life for his sheep. Don't get me wrong, Jesus was claiming to be God. He was God. He makes it pretty clear in John chapter 10, verse 30. The Father and I are one. His audience would have heard echoes of the Shema in that statement, the most important recitation of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So Jesus was definitely claiming to be God, but I don't think that was all he was doing by making that reference. I think by making that reference to the Shema, he was reminding us what the heart, what the values of the shepherd are. And so as we prepare for communion, let's recite those values together, what James calls the royal law that gives freedom and what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Would you stand as we say them together as we come to the table? Let's say it together. Jesus answered, The most important is this, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, The Lord is one, And you shall love the Lord your God With all your heart, And with all your soul, And with all your mind, And with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.